Good morning, church. Man, I am so pumped that you are here this morning. Thanks for joining us right here to worship our risen Savior. We give his name praise. We know he sits on his throne, and we lean into the story because he is our blessing, our joy, our hope. Is he not, church? We come together today to celebrate uh, that risen Savior, and we want to say welcome to our guests that are here today. Thanks for joining us and being a part of Crosspoint this morning, and our hope would be if you're looking for a church home, man, we'd love for you to think about Crosspoint being that place you could call home to bring your family to use your gift set to help us tell that story of hope that is Jesus Christ because after all, he is the one who will make all things new and he's the only one that will make all things new. What a joy it is to be together as God's people today as we dig into the word of God and discover how we're called to live uh, but also to encourage each other uh, on the journey. Thanks again for being here. Uh, We're going to be in Psalm chapter 13 to start with this morning, so I hope you've got your Bibles and will turn with me there. All of our texts will be on the screen. You know, we are a family, and that's we talk about that a lot here. Uh, Hopefully you got a uh, multiple greetings when you walked in the door, but there are moments when we pause and pray for uh, folks who are in need of prayer, and we want to pray this morning for Ann Connor, who is going to have surgery in the morning. It's been put off, put off, put off, and finally, uh, I think she's turned the corner, and we'll... uh, She'll get to have that surgery in the morning. So let's take a moment as a church uh, to bow our heads and just offer a, a prayer for her as she moves into tomorrow. God, we come to you this morning, first of all, thanking you for the avenue of prayer, knowing that you are so rich, you are so great, you are so awesome. Everything that you want to happen, you will make happen. God, you're the God of the impossible. And this morning, we bring before you one of our dear sisters, Ann Connor, who's headed into surgery tomorrow. And we pray, God, a blessing on her through that process, that you would be with her as the doctors and nurses attend to her, that, God, everything will go just as planned. Thank you, God, for this church family who acts just like a family, and we love being around one another, praying for one another, and being there for one another. Thank you, God, for Jesus Christ, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, church, we launched a brand new series today called Blank Page, and what do we do when God is silent? And today and then next week, we'll unpack what that means for us in our life and how we can pull out some information that hopefully will be helpful for you as you journey through your own life uh, when you feel like God is silent in your life. I mean, because my guess would be if you're like me, you've given people the silent treatment before, right? And you've probably received some of that along the way. We usually see that in the context of a marriage. Somebody makes a bad decision like buying a bass boat and not talking to their partner about that. I don't know. Could be. And you get the silent treatment in that moment. Uh, and so uh, you kind of withdraw. You quiet down. There's no real interaction. But we've, we've seen that also when, when we've not done right by our best friend or maybe our uh, kids, or maybe even our parents. There have been lots of scenarios where maybe you have experienced the silent treatment, and we know that's, that's not a good feeling. It doesn't feel good. But what do we do as a people of God when we feel that we are getting the silent treatment from God? When you're offering prayer and your life and you're interacting, you're in the Word, and it still feels like there's just no answer from God. It's as if you're speaking your words and they're just melting away into oblivion. What do we do in our life when we feel like God is silent? At the end of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, we call it the Old Testament, at the end of the Old Testament, but before the New Testament, there is a space where God is silent. In history, it's about 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 
And we look at that space and we wonder, where was God in that moment? Is he part of that process? There is, there's no preacher present, at least written down. There's no word from God. There is no prophet of God speaking the word of God. And so where is God in that moment? Now, if we were to put uh, the books of the Old Testament in chronological order, Nehemiah would be the last book of the Old Testament. Uh, it's uh, written by Nehemiah, who was a governor uh, for uh, Judah. He went back from captivity. It was the second group to actually go back after they'd been taken into Babylonian captivity. Persia let them go back and begin rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the wall of Jerusalem. And so Nehemiah writes down what that looks like, and that's about 420 B.C. But after that moment, up until the birth of Christ, we really don't hear anything else about God or from God. In Bibles that look like this, and not necessarily like this, editors typically put in a blank page in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that one blank page represents 400 years of silence. So what do we do in our life when our story has a blank page. When we don't feel like we're hearing from God, we want his wisdom, we want to discern correctly, we want to know the direction to go. Maybe relationships aren't panning out like we thought and we ask for help in the process, but it just seems like we are not hearing anything. Now, we don't talk about that amongst ourselves because we don't want to be the one who is not hearing from God. We hear how everyone else is interacting and seeing God and knows God is present, but yet we feel a little absent in that, in that way, and so we, we pull back. We don't talk about that. Yet each and every one of us at some point in our life, if we haven't already, are asking the question, where is God in my story? When things aren't working out, where is God? When things aren't moving in the direction I feel like they should, where is God in that story, in my story. King David in the Old Testament has moments like that as well. And so let's read Psalm 13, which he writes when he feels this blank page moment. Oh Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you look the other way? How long must I struggle with my anguish in my soul, with sorrow in my heart every day? How long will my enemy have the upper hand? Turn and answer me, O God. Restore the sparkle in my eyes, for I will die. Don't let my enemies gloat, saying, we have defeated him. Don't let them rejoice at my downfall, but I trust in your unfailing love. I will rejoice because you have rescued me. I will sing to the Lord because he is good to me. And church, the Lord is good, is he not? He is good. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you have ever experienced a dropped call? Anyone? Yes, all of us. Of course we all have. 
It's that moment where you're driving down the road and you're pouring your heart out. You're telling a story. It's something incredibly important. Maybe you're in a mountainous area. Maybe you're out in the middle of nowhere. And three or four minutes into your conversation, as you're pouring your heart out, you realize there's really no interaction from the other end. And your first three questions are, hello? Are you there? Can you hear me? Well, I guess I lost them. And maybe you try again, maybe they call back. There are moments in our spiritual life when it feels like we've received a dropped call from God. We're asking questions, we're living our story out, we're we're living like we think that we're called to live, and yet it seems like there's really nothing from the other end. There are moments in your life when you feel like God is silent. A couple of football seasons ago, I uh, had an experience with a family in Oklahoma. Uh, Steve Ham, as a good friend of mine, is now preaching in Oklahoma. Uh, and his son was a linebacker on a high school football team. He was uh, in the first half uh, making tackles, doing a great job, uh, had a, a little weird hit, if you will. He stood up, got back in the huddle, and at halftime, he just wasn't really acting right, and finally he collapsed. They took him to the hospital. I drove to Tulsa, was standing at the foot of his bed in ICU because Ben was in a coma. But you can, you can bet there were prayers going up. You can bet there were lots of family and friends in that room and in the waiting room, gathered around the family, praying with them, reading scripture. But a few days later, Ben passed away. Now, in that moment, you scream out to God, God, why don't you do something? Why don't you come into my story and make some things happen? And many of you have had that type of experience before where you've experienced dramatic loss. And you ask that question, God, where are you in my story? Why do I have to experience a blank page right now in my story? Why don't you do something? I mean, you spoke the world into existence. You sent your son down as a part of a salvation plan for me to get back to you. You've done some incredible things in my life that I've already seen. But why don't you do something about it? How about it? And it's not just a ho-hum uh, ask. It's sincere. It's desperate. God, God, why don't you fix my unemployment? I've done everything I possibly can to find that job. I've got my resumes out. I'm networking. I'm talking to people, but just nothing is coming in, and I need to feed my family. God, why don't you do something about that? My marriage is on the rocks. We've read all the books. We continue to talk and discuss. We go to counselors, but nothing seems to be working out. God, why don't you step in and do something about what is happening here? My adult children are making poor decisions in the world. I know I didn't raise them like that, and I pray for them. God, why don't you intervene in their life? God, why don't you do something about that? And I just got back from the doctor, and I've heard the C word, cancer, and yet... I've tried to live right, eat right, do the right things, and yet, God, where are you in my story? You look around the world at people who want to follow Jesus Christ, who are following Jesus Christ, and they find themselves being persecuted, either imprisoned or even killed. And we ask in that moment, God, why don't you do something about that moment? We see each and every day, young children in Africa who are dying because they just don't have enough to eat. And we ask the question, God, why don't you do something about it? During that inter 
Testamental period, God seems like he's silent. But what I want to do the rest of this morning and next week is for us to realize that God is still working in the silence. That God is still alive and functioning in the silence. That God is still God in the silence. I want to start out by giving you a little brief world history. Don't roll your eyes. I know. We haven't started school yet. We're going to do the Cliff Notes version this morning. But it's important to understand some of the history that occurred during that blank page moment, the 400 years of history where we don't hear much of anything up until the birth of Christ. So there was a point in time when the Babylonians in the Middle East ruled the world. They controlled everything. As a matter of fact, the Babylonians were the ones who came in and took Jerusalem and the rest of Judea into captivity. They took them as slaves for their population. And the world kind of, kind of bowed to what Babylon was doing. But then a, a new group of people rose to the surface, the Persians. They conquered the Babylonians. And during Persia's rule of the world, they allowed the Israelites, to go back home and to rebuild Jerusalem. They sent one group back, began to rebuild the temple, got that done. They sent another group back with Nehemiah to rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. The Persians were far-reaching, but they were not content with what they had. They wanted more territory, more space, and they were on the verge of invading a country known as Greece. Now, Greece is made up of city-states. Basically, what that looks like is there is a large town, and they have a king, and the territory around the town is controlled by the city and the king. Greece is made up of several city-states. The most powerful at this moment in history is the one that is run by Philip II of Macedon, Macedonia. They're the most powerful city-state in Greece. And Philip talks to all the other city-states and kind of gets them all together unified to go to war against Persia. They don't want Persia coming in and taking their space, their country, their land. And so Philip draws up a war plan. They're about ready to launch into this war against Persia. And suddenly, Philip II is assassinated. His young son makes a decision. He ascends to the throne. He now becomes king. He's in his mid-20s. And he looks at the war plan that, that his father has put together and decides, we're going to do this. Now, you and I know this young son as Alexander the Great. And why is he called the Great? Because in only 12 years, he conquered the entire world at such a young age. That, that means, of course, Greece, and then all of the Middle East, northern Africa, Egypt, all the way up into the country of India was controlled by Greece. And so Greece culture creeps in, language creeps in, religion, theology, all the things that Greece has to offer the world, architecture. And pretty soon everybody has their native language going on, but also everybody knows a little bit of Greek, Koine Greek. Everybody can communicate now. It's probably the first time on the planet that everybody understands everyone else since the Tower of Babel in Genesis. It's an incredible moment where all the world is talking and can understand one another. Now, what is the point in all of this? It's that God is preparing the way for his son, Jesus Christ. 
God is working to prepare the world for the birth of his son. There's a common language now, which means that the good news of Jesus Christ can quickly spread to all nations. Everybody is going to be able to understand the story of Jesus Christ. It spreads rapidly. Greece creates a, a way of common thinking and asking questions, and the answer to those questions is going to be Emmanuel, the Son of God. He is going to be the answer to all questions. It's interesting as well, about 280 B.C., the Hebrew Bible was written in, can you guess what language? Hebrew, good job. You guys are awake. I appreciate that. <laughs> in about, about 200 BC, 280 B.C., rather, the Hebrew Bible is translated into Greek, which we call the Septuagint, and now the entire world can read the story of how God has interacted in the world since creation. The entire world knows the backdrop for his son, the Messiah, who is about to be born. But then something happens. Rome rises to the surface, and they challenge Greece for their right to control the world. And in 63 BC, a guy by the name of Julius Caesar becomes the first emperor of Rome, and Rome takes over the duties of controlling the world. Everything now is going to be Roman and run by the Romans. But some 25 years before Jesus is born, Julius Caesar is assassinated. There's a small civil war that happens, and the guy that comes out on top is a guy by the name of Augustus Caesar, and you'll see his name in the gospel accounts in the New Testament. Augustus, during his throne, starts projects and road systems. There's about 200 years of peace in the Roman Empire, which means that the government can focus on trade and trade routes, great roads, a security system during that road-building system that will allow people to, to move freely about the country. Understand that, that this highway system is going to be important. Why does it matter? Because Jesus will be born and the church has now everything in place to grow rapidly. Everybody understands the language and now there's a way to get the story of Jesus to all the world. See, you, you think God's not saying anything. You, you think that he's not moving. But when you listen closely, what we find is that God is always working. And in the silence, church, we discover that God is still at work. In the silence, God is still at work. It's such a powerful sentence. I want you to whisper it with me, if you will. In the silence, God is still at work. And he's at work in your life as well. In the silence, God is still fulfilling his promises as well. God doesn't change. He's the same person as he was thousands of years ago, millennia ago, as he is for us today. The next time that you think that he's silent in your story, remembering, remember that he's always working and he's always keeping his promises. The things that he has said in Scripture long ago are the same truths that exist for you and I today. 
I mean, 400 years, it's not just a generation, it's multiple generations. I mean, it seems that God is silent for a long time, that he's forgotten about us, that that really he's almost a wall, but that is not the truth. We have a lot of soldiers right now in the Middle East, and they go out on missions from their base camp. The story goes that there's uh, one soldier who, who realizes he's about to go out for several weeks at a time out into the wilderness. And so he gets on the sat phone and he calls his wife and lets her know, hey, I love you. I'm about to go out. I'll be gone for a long time. Don't know when I'll get to talk to you again. And so the wife gets busy. She begins to write letters back home. She writes letters about how much she admires him, respects him, loves him, how she's keeping the home front for him, how that he is the apple of her eye. And she writes these letters, very poetic, very beautiful, very loving. And she puts them in envelopes, and one says week one, week two, week three. She bundles all those together, and she mails them to her husband before he's, he's to go out. And so he receives those letters, and he puts them in his backpack, and then his, his unit goes out into the wilderness for several weeks. And week one, he pulls that letter from his wife, and he opens it and reads it, and he sees and is reminded and encouraged by her love and affection for him. He can't wait till week two. Week two rolls around. He pulls out another letter and the same thing over and over and over again. And church, this is an example of what God does for you and me through his word. Each and every day, we can go back and read the love letters that God has put together for you and for me to remind us that we're not alone, that he loves us even in the silence, that he's not going anywhere. What he said is true so long ago is also true for us today. His nature and character does not change. Church, he loves you. He wants you to know that. During that 400 years of silence, the people continue to read God's love letters in that Hebrew Bible. Consider for a moment the Passover that continued to happen year after year after year, even in captivity, where the head of household sat at the, at the head of the table and retold the story of how God came to the rescue. In Egypt, the Israelites were released from bondage and they journeyed toward the promised land. And how encouraging that would have been to those around the table. Moments where that head of household might have reminded the family of what Isaiah wrote down of what God said in Isaiah 41, when he said, don't be afraid for I am with you. Don't be discouraged for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will hold you up with my victorious right hand. Or what the prophet Jeremiah wrote in chapter 29 when he said, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised and will bring you home again. And time and time again, God in that Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament reminds us how he's pursued us through time. And then our New Testament writers continue to remind us of that very thing. What Paul says in Romans chapter 8, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Or what he says to the church in Philippi in Philippians chapter 1, when he says, and I am certain that God who began the good work within you will continue his work until it finally finished on the day when Christ Jesus returns. And what we were reminded of last week in Revelation chapter 21, he will wipe 
every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. The promises of God are still true today that he wrote so many years ago. Your God and my God, he loves us. God has spoken those truths, and we know they they are true because he is loyal and true, faithful and true. But I'm also reminded that in the silence, God is still watching. He's watching your story unfold. And he wants to use your story, your blank page moment, to to scream his name from the mountaintops, to let the world around us know how incredible our God truly is. And we look at God and look toward God and we ask, God, do you see what I'm seeing? Do do you see how things are evolving in my life? Do you see the relationships that are happening? And we're reminded that, yes, God is continually watching us. I'm reminded of an Old Testament character that you know well by the name of Job. Job, initially in the text, it tells us he was a righteous man. He followed God. He did everything that God wanted him to do. And yet he ended up having a blank page moment where God was silent as he began to lose much of what was around him. The text says that he lost everything. He lost his house. He lost his barn with all the wheat in it. He lost his servants. He lost his Twitter account. Everything was gone. He lost his herds. He lost his children. Here's a guy who's lost everything. And he's trying to see God in the silence of the moment. Job is asking, why is this happening to me? And Job says in chapter 23, I go east, but he's not there. I go west, but I cannot find him. I do not see him in the north, for he is hidden. I look to the south, but he is concealed. But he knows where I am going. And when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold. For I have stayed on God's paths. I have followed his ways and not turned aside. I have not departed from his commands, but have treasured his words more than daily food." Job says, listen, I, I realize God is silent right now. I can't find him or see him anywhere, but I'm going to stay faithful to the God I know to be true to me. I'm going to stay plugged in to that moment. He knows your story. The primary purpose of silence may not to be to test your faith, but our faith is truly tested in the silence, is it not? I mean, your faith may not be, your your test may not be to test your faith, but in the silence, our faith is truly tested. And Jesus reminds us in Revelation, he calls the churches, be faithful even unto death, because I've got a crown of life waiting for you. I've got something special waiting for you. Even in the silence, stay true to me. Sometimes in silence, your faith is tested. Now, I'm sure many of you have been in class, gone to class. I've been through several semesters of class through uh, college degrees. And it's almost the same every time. 
You walk into the classroom the first day. There's a, a teacher, professor there. They may have their name written on the whiteboard. You're going to get a syllabus. These are the expectations of you in this class. Here is all the reading you're going to have to do. And the list falls out to the floor, and you're like, oh my goodness, I'm in the wrong class. But through the course of that class, every single day, the teacher teaches. She, he or she brings up the resources that they've given you, the readings that they've given you. They entertain questions from the class. They'll do one-on-one time if you come by their office. They are open and ready for you. They want you to succeed. You want to succeed. There may even be moments in the lecture, in the discussion, where the the foot is stomped a little bit, and you know that's going to be, I need to know that for later, so make sure and take a note on what they're talking about right now. It's going to be important. And the whole semester rolls out like that. You're, you're learning, you're reading, you're interacting with others, you're getting some one-on-one, you're knowing the material. But there will come a day at the end of the semester where the teacher will walk in, give you a test, and sit in silence while you take that test. Church, this morning is a reminder that, that even in the silence, God has prepared you for the silence. He's given you his word. He's revealed his nature and character that you can trust him, that he loves you beyond measure. He sent his son for you. He has spoken to you, prepared you, informed you, and reminded you that he is the God of all gods and he is your God. You also have an identity in him in that you are his sons and daughters. He is not going to leave you. He loves you. God has not forgotten you. And so this morning is a moment for us to reflect on that very idea that there are many of us in this room who may right now be experiencing that moment of silence. But you should know, and we all need to be reminded that God is God and he is awesome. And he is walking with you even in the silence. God in the silence is still working. God, even in the silence, keeps his promises. And God, even in the silence, is watching you and your story. And he wants you to trust in him, to continue to follow him, to know that he loves you beyond measure. We're going to end a little differently than we do normally this morning in that this has been a moment for us to, to be reflective to be contemplative as we think about how God is interacting in our life, even in the silence. And so in a moment, I'm gonna, we're going to let Luke lead us in a song. But it's going to be a moment of quiet. The lights are going to dim just a little bit. The song is going to be impactful, I think, certainly is to me. And as we think about where we are in our story, in our blank page moment, in moments where we've experienced the silence of God, to be reminded that God is walking with us. He's with us every single minute. He loves us. So in a moment, you, you can use whatever worship stance you want. If you'd rather sit down, that's fine. If you want to stand, that's fine. If you want to raise hands, that's fine. Close your eyes. Whatever is most comfortable to you as we sing this next song, for us to think about how incredible and awesome our God is.